Lydia Kincaid, and I'm Managing Director of IIM Innovation in Motion. We are an early stage investing platform focusing on seed to Series A companies in the agriculture, animal health, and human health markets. I'm hosting our podcast today with our managing member, Lee Harris. Um, throughout these episodes, we talk about different topics related to venture capital investing. And this one, we're directing it towards founders. Um, so some advice for those of you who might be considering raising venture capital dollars. Um, today, specifically, uh, we'll be talking through a decision-making process for how to decide, one, if your company is ready um, and is an appropriate fit for venture capital dollars, then how to prepare for raising venture capital money, um, and then what that's going to feel like after the investment has occurred. Um, so, Lee, we talk a lot about this, a lifestyle business versus a venture-backed business. And there are two very distinct business models there that help us when we're looking at companies decide if this company right out of the gates is going to be a good fit for us. But speaking to founders, what are some things, um, and we can go back and forth on this, but what are some things they might need to consider before deciding even to take on outside investor capital? Well, so we've talked before about a vitamin pill versus a painkiller. Uh, as an analogy, and that is if, if an idea that you're building a business around is a vitamin pill, that means that people don't have to have it. They may want to have it to feel better, but they don't have to have it. Uh, on the other hand, a painkiller, uh, when you're hurt, you need it, and you need it badly, and uh, you'll do almost anything to, to get it. Uh, so in the venture world, we like to see painkillers instead of vitamin pills. So if your idea is such that, uh, it's a painkiller, that's a, a, definitely a plus for, uh, you to, to be able to secure venture, uh, venture capital down the road. Also, it's important to look at the total addressable market. Uh, why? What does that mean, first of all? Well, we've talked several times on this podcast about the TAM, Total Addressable Market, being realistic. We see uh, founders that come with a total addressable market in the billions and billions and tens and fifties and hundreds of billions of dollars, and sometimes that's not realistic. It's uh, sure the industry they're targeting may be that large, but what they're doing is not going to offer that much of an opportunity. So it's important to, to be realistic about your total addressable market. So if, if, if the, the, the size of that market's $100 billion, let's say, but your piece of that with your idea, the problem you're solving, maybe that's $10 billion, that's still good. Uh, if it's $10 million, that's not so good in terms of uh, our ability to fund a venture like that. So we're looking for a total addressable market, typically in the billions, because we as uh, venture capital providers are looking for outsized returns in terms of opportunity. And Lydia, you might address this in terms of just exactly what do we mean by outsized returns? So by outsized returns, we mean that there's a there's a general risk reward profile that fits taking a really high risk by putting investment dollars into an early stage business. So we are not looking for opportunities that are going to give us some sort of you know 
five or six percent dividend per year in perpetuity. We are we we know that the business will take some time to grow and develop, but then at the end of that five to seven, maybe ten or twelve year timeline, the company has grown exponentially, and we receive a ten x to twenty x return on our money from when we first invested. That's an outsized return. The reason we are so disciplined about looking for that return in every deal that we do is because we know realistically not every business is going to make it that we invest in. Um, we sure hope that they'll all be successful and we want to see that potential when we invest. Um, but the data tells us that that is not realistic. Um, for every 10 companies that a venture capital investor invests in, typically half of them will go out of business. Um, maybe two or three will get um, the investor dollars returned to them. So they'll make a little bit of money along the way. Um, and that last, you know, two or one is really going to be the one that carries the whole portfolio, if you will. So we have to see that there's an opportunity in every single investment that we make for that outsized return to occur. This is a really specific asset class um, that we are investing in because we believe it's a diversification tool. It's it's something that's outside of the typical stock and bond market. So we wanna see outsized return for the outside risk that we're taking. Um, I think a lot of founders get stuck on that concept um, and they have these projections that look nice and the business grows incrementally over time and it can look like a sustainable business, um, but that's just not a fit, at least for our investors who are putting venture capital dollars to work. Um, on the other hand, we do want to see realistic projections. So if we're seeing growth that's shown, you know, a hundred times year over year over year, that just doesn't feel realistic to us. We want to see realistic, sustainable, aggressive growth goals in order for us to see that the risk reward profile um, will be worth it for our investment dollars. Something else that I think differentiates a lifestyle business from our venture backed business is intellectual property. Um, so there really needs to be something uh, that differentiates this business in a big way, um, more than just a little bit better way of doing something. And we want to see that there's either patents or some, side, some sort of serious secret sauce um, that creates a big time moat around the business so that even if there are competitors who start to play the field, um, which there, there will be if it's a worthwhile, total addressable market, um, then we want to see that this business is going to win, that they'll be, you know, the, at the end of the day, they'll be the ones who are the best at what they do. And some markets are large enough to sustain more than one winner in a category. Um, but we want to see that there's a serious competitive advantage to the companies that we invest in. Lee, you want to add anything to the intellectual property and patentability piece of this? Sure. I think that, uh, uh, the, the whole notion of intellectual property, don't, don't think you have to have that patent fully secured. It can be a patent pending, uh, and, and you have protection. Uh, again, you know, so there's some people that wonder, investors also, that wonder, well, gee, this is a great idea. Why doesn't XYZ big corporation just take this idea and run with it? And, uh, Usually that's not going to happen because uh, these companies have many ideas that they're looking at through their research and development arms. Uh, they have uh, other goals and objectives. They have uh, bureaucracies. 
And frankly, it's a lot easier for them to, to, to spot a young upstart company with an idea that they'd like to nurture down the road and, and help it mature, and they'll buy that company down the road. Uh, but it's less likely that they'll do that if there is no intellectual property. Uh, if it's just a great idea, but anybody could do it, that's where there's less of a chance for a big company to, to buy that, uh, uh, that upstart. <laughs> and uh, there's even a higher probability at some point, uh, especially if you get traction, uh, where they'll go into business uh, that XYZ big company is going to go into business uh, and take that idea and run with it themselves if there's no protection. So you're absolutely right. IP, intellectual property, is critical here. And generally, that's in some form of a patent or a patent pending. Uh, and, and that's just, just really important. I think, too, on the, the whole notion of exit, if we're looking at a company that has a true total addressable market in the billions of dollars, we need to see that opportunity for an outsized return probably in the hundreds of millions of dollars. We're not shooting for unicorns, a unicorn being a company that's worth a billion dollars or more. Uh, there's a There's been a lot of them lately. There's a lot fewer of them right now with the, the market downturn. Uh, but in the space that we're occupying, the ag space, the animal health space particularly, Maybe there's there's some opportunity for unicorns in the human health, but not so much in the ag and animal health fields. But we need to see hundreds of millions of dollars as a possibility. Why? Because we're going to have a diluted uh, interest eventually if if there are multiple rounds of funding. Talk a little bit, Lydia, about uh, the notion of uh, different funding rounds and some. Founders think that, well, I'll raise money once, and that'll be enough. Um, and, and how realistic is that? That's right. So typically, venture-backed businesses um, do need several rounds of investor dollars in order to achieve an exit. Um, and that's where this diluted factor comes in, not just for investors getting diluted, but founders as well. Um, typically, founders can expect to give up 20 to 30% equity of their company per round of investment. So if we're investing at the seed stage, which is typically the first outside investor round, there's probably going to be 20 to 30% of equity given to investors as a to in, a, in total for that round. And then that's going to happen again at the Series A, maybe a little bit less so each round because there's more investors on the cap table already and there's more dollars. Um, but certain investors, I mean, most venture capital investors have a target ownership rate as well. So they want to see that they can own a certain percentage of the company, um, which brings me to my next point as well, so that investors can have a certain level of control. Um, so as founder shares get diluted, investor shares become greater, um, that accountability factor really increases over time as well. So as a founder, not only does your business have to meet all the boxes um, that investors are looking for in order to invest, but you yourself need to be willing to give up some control. Um, investors want to have a say in how the business is run. They'll have budget oversight. Um, major decisions being made by the company can no longer be made in a vacuum, and they'll have to be made by the board of directors, which in our experience is usually five people. 
um, at the early stage, sometimes three. Um, but we really like to see a five-member board of directors. One of those is the CEO. Um, but we like to see one or two investor representatives as well on the board. Um, and so that level of accountability increases when you take outside investor capital. Um, a good board of directors can really help guide strategy for the business, can help open doors to customers, to potential acquirers, can help negotiate better terms for future fundraising rounds. Um, there's a lot of benefits to bringing on outside investors, um, being able to take advantage of the wisdom that they bring to the table. Um, but that also means, you know, you've got some bosses. Some people like to go into business for themselves. Um, but once you take on venture capital dollars, well, all of a sudden you do have to report to that board of directors. Um, and a good board of directors will also, you know, follow up on things that were said at that last meeting and then make sure that things are getting done that are supposed to get done. Lee, you want to add some commentary on the board of directors? It's something that's been really important to us. We said this in our last podcast that the earlier in the process that you bring a board of directors together, uh, the more attractive you become for later funding rounds uh, because that accountability is developed early on in the life of that company. Uh, and just because you have a, a five-person board uh, in your seed stage funding round, uh, you don't have to lose control at that point. I mean, if let's say it's a 20% dilution, you still have 80% of the company theoretically. Um, and so you can, you can have uh, one investor or two investors on the board and, and yourself and, and maybe a co-founder and somebody else uh, that theoretically is aligned with you. So, so again, as you vote, uh, on, and within the board, you maintain that control. Uh, but having regular board meetings, having minutes uh, that are recorded, uh, making sure that all key decisions are made within that board format and not outside that board format. In, in other words, having a real board, we really think is a is a plus, and we don't see that happen very often. Uh, but if we if, if if a company comes to us and says we have a real board of directors and we're looking for seed stage capital, we're going to pay attention because they're setting it up right from the beginning. Uh, so we said this in the last podcast. I think it, it's uh, worthy of of emphasizing again. A real board is is terrific uh, at the earliest stages. And uh, the the other element here is you may not have. Uh, a real deep domain expertise. Maybe you've had a great idea, but it's a, it's in a somewhat of a technical field, and uh, and, and you and your co-founder aren't uh, experts in that field. Uh, maybe there's a key employee that is, um, and that's all great. But you could get somebody on your board that has that level of expertise domain expertise, technical expertise that can provide uh, credibility uh, as well as uh, some of the knowledge that's necessary to, to really be effective in fine-tuning the product or service that you're, uh, you're offering. Something else that could be expertise on your board is regulatory experience as well. Um, it's It can be really challenging for an early stage company to hire somebody just for their regulatory experience. It can be very expensive. 
um, and they might not need that experience day in and day out um, or that expertise, but having someone on the board of directors who has regulatory experience and connections, especially in the human health companies that we look at, a lot of those have regulatory pathways in animal health as well, uh, regulatory burdens that they have to overcome and meet. Um, I think the board of directors can be a great place for like an independent director to have that regulatory expertise and connections. So, so let's say as a founder, like, yes, you, you meet all those requirements that we've been discussing um, and you decide you're ready to raise venture capital dollars. Uh, one of the first things that I would recommend, and, and Lee, I know you believe this as well, one of the first things I would recommend you do is put together a data room. When there's all sorts of resources on the internet that you can find sample due diligence checklists. Um, we have our own due diligence checklist that is not that different from what other serious professional venture capitalists use. Um, find the most robust one that you can and start populating a data room. A data room is a collection of materials that are related to your business, all the way from incorporation documents, um, any contracts that you have, financial statements, like historical financial statements, forward-looking projections, um, any sort of intellectual property material information about your key team members, about yourself, about your board. Um, the due diligence checklist will cover all of that information and more. And so one of the best things um, that we see when we are, to, when our team is talking with an early stage founder, um, when we ask them for a data and they say, yep, we got it covered. Here you go. And they send us a link. And that's usually through Dropbox or, or Google Docs or something like that, um, a, a shared drive, if you will, um, that we can access all this information. Um, so that that helps us move forward seamlessly with our process. Um, and I think any founder is well served to have that ready before you start having fundraising conversations. Um, one of the fastest ways to slow down our process is to say, oh, I don't have a data room yet but I'll, I'll get working on putting it together. Um, that can take months. Um, and so by then, usually our group has moved on to the next opportunity and then it's to go back and revisit something that we were previously excited about. I mean, that all just slows down um, the momentum in that sense. Um, so putting together a data room, other things, Lee, either related to the data room or, or ways to prepare for, for raising capital. I think in addition to the items you mentioned in the data room, adding research and studies, if if you've commissioned any or there are any that you've uncovered in the in the course of putting together your idea and, and forming your company, uh, anything from a third party uh, that bolsters the, the case for why you're a painkiller, as we talked about previously, I think that that's important to have in that data room. You can't have too much information in a data room. Right. Uh, and, and we see just the opposite most of the time. It's pretty scant and usually at the seed stage, very well maybe the founder hasn't even thought about it or heard about it. And so, again, preparing yourself to, to enter the venture world and having that data room in top shape before you start knocking on doors for, for money I think is 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 great advice, and whatever's in that data room needs to be robust enough that it uh, when when we do our due diligence, uh, we're impressed, uh, impressed enough to want to write a check. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing I think that and this is a bit of a touchy subject, I realize, but 
understand that as a CEO, uh, eventually you're going to have to let your ego get out of the way uh, because it may very well be you're not the best CEO in the world. Uh, you can learn to be a good CEO, but many founders, by the time they get into later stages of funding, whether it's Series C, Series B, E, etc., uh, there's going to be some some investors that come forward and say, okay, you're scaling the company nicely, but we really would like to see a professional CEO that has a track record step in here. That doesn't mean that you're being shoved out of the way in terms of your expertise or your ownership. It just means that uh, your investors believe that someone else can do the job better uh, to scale the company to the to, to the level necessary for the kind of exit that we're all looking for. There is nothing wrong with that. This does not mean that you will be a failure if you have to step aside as a CEO. You should prepare yourself for that. It very well may be that you don't have to step aside as the CEO, but in many, many cases that that happens and it unfortunately can be a surprise for somebody that's not aware of that being uh, kind of the, the the way of the world. So uh, that's why I say put your ego on hold. Uh, you're still going to uh, end up with, particularly uh, if it's a successful business, it, it probably will enhance the uh, the exit uh, that you will realize and benefit from. Uh, and isn't that what this is all about? Again, if it's a lifestyle business, the founder often is unwilling to give up control and unwilling to acknowledge the fact that somebody else could scale the business to a much greater level, and they want to, they want that CEO title. Uh, and so that very well may be a signal that uh, this is not a, a company that's, that's, that's going to be successful as a venture-backed organization. I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that, Lydia. Well, I think I think the statistics show that less than 10% of venture-backed businesses have the founder as a CEO by the time they exit. Um, I mean, I, it might be even half of that. I'd have to look up that statistic again. But, you know, by the time a company goes public um, or gets acquired, it's most often not going to be the founder who's the CEO at that time. Even at the seed stage where we really focus on, Lee, there are several companies in our portfolio who have already hired an outside CEO. The inventor or the founder is still on the board of directors or maybe chairman of the board and still really involved in the company, or maybe not, not always. Sometimes they step aside early, early on. Um, but we often see that a professional CEO has been hired to really accelerate the growth of that business even earlier. Um, so yeah, again, I would echo that it's, it's not a bad thing for that to happen and there's nothing to be you know embarrassed about. I think self-awareness self goes a long way in this business. Um, when we see a founder who really knows their strengths and weaknesses and is willing to do what's best for the company, um, that makes everyone else more confident um, and more excited about the business. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you were saying about that. What else, Lee? Let me also talk real quickly about the pitch. <laughs> so as you prepare for uh, the, the possibility of, of some venture capital being infused into your uh, business, uh, obviously you're going to need to convince somebody to do that. And uh, we 
we listen to pitches all all the time, and we've seen good ones, and we've seen a lot of really bad ones. Uh, but I think there's some things to, to 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 just on a general basis to really keep in mind about a pitch. Uh, having a slide deck is pretty much uh, uh, commonplace these days. But the, one of the worst things you can do is to to present that slide deck and read from it. Uh, I like to to do a slide deck where maybe there's a photograph or a single number or something. It, 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 it generates some interest, but then uh, it's something we talk about. And so this is a chance for you to get somebody's attention with a slide deck and then turn around and have that conversation. And you may have a different slide deck for uh, something that's a leave behind with uh, all your facts and figures and, and that sort of thing. But when you're making that presentation to the investors, this is about you. It's not about what's on the screen. And people want to have confidence in you as the founder. And they want to, they want to feel your excitement and your optimism about your idea. And so, again, having a, uh, a PowerPoint slide that you start reading from uh, is not very inspiring, but having uh, you connect with your audience, whether it's five people or 50 people, it's, it's critically important that, to, that you make that great impression. And I got to tell you, all the experts are right, in that first minute or two, people are going to form an impression uh, about you and whether or not you are uh, somebody that they have confidence in. So again, the, the whole notion here is uh, when you make that pitch, it's about instilling confidence and, it, and inspiring people uh, that, that want to invest in your idea. So just that's just a, a quick tip. And that, I guess I would then ask you, Lydia, Let's say we've now agreed to make that investment. We're going to put half a million dollars in your company. And there's three more, four more investor groups that are putting another uh, million dollars in your company. So you're raising a million and a half dollars. Now what happens? What happens? That's right. So, so you've gone and pitched to hundreds of investors, literally, because that's what it takes to close. Um, and now you've got the investor capital dollars in, you have your board of directors established and probably refined a little bit based on the lead investor in that round. Like for us to put in half a million dollars in a company, we would require a board seat um, as part of our investment at an absolute minimum, a board observer role. So if it's a much larger investment round, you know, five to $10 million and we're putting in $500,000, that's probably more of a board observer role for us. But if it's a one to $2 million round and we're the lead investor, definitely would need um, a seat on the board um, in order for us to justify that kind of investment. So something I think this is most critical is that board of directors, um, setting up a regular cadence of meetings quarterly at a minimum. Um, some of our companies do monthly board meetings, um, kind of depending on what's going on in the company and the level of urgency that they have to get together as a group. Um, so quarterly, if not monthly meetings for the board, um, setting an agenda for each one of those, like really thinking through what you want from your board, um, the desired outcomes 
what you're going to discuss, decisions that need to be made. That's really one of the major pieces of this as well. And then that timeline starts ticking as well to get your company to an exit. Um, so if it's the seed stage, most founders are actually already thinking about the next round of capital when you have to start fundraising. Could it, it could take a year from the time that you decide to start fundraising to closing. Because um, again, got to talk with hundreds of people. There's varying timelines for processes um, and how long things take. So your board can help you with that. But it's, you know, closing a round of investment isn't the time to sit back and just enjoy things for a while. There, there is no time for that. Um, the best founders are moving forward right away, um, continuing to, to gain new customers for the business, really using those venture capital dollars in the way that you said you would. So if it's making new hires, make those hires as soon as possible. Um, building out your sales team, continuing to develop intellectual property, uh, moving forward with the regulatory pathway that's going to help that company reach different valuation milestones. Um, things are getting really serious and need to keep moving faster and faster in order for your investors to be happy and for the company to grow. Um, anything else you want to add, Lee? Um, sure. Happy, yeah. happy the investments made. I would say one last thing, and that is, as you report, and that's something we're going to require of you as a founder, in addition to board meetings, we wanted to see some, some statistical data from you on a quarterly basis, and you should get right in the swing of providing that, that we shouldn't have to pry that out of uh, out of a founder. Uh, <clears throat> but what we don't want is we don't want to hear a bunch of horse hockey. <laughs> uh, we know there are going to be issues. There always will be issues. Tell us what's, what's going well. <clears throat> Tell us what's not going well. Uh, and ask for help. Uh, don't think that this has to be a situation where you have to constantly impress us with how fantastic the uh, things are going with your company. And uh, you, we never hear a contrary word because we know that's not reality and you're, you're delusional if that's the way you play the game. What we want to know is, is you know, what's, what the problems are, how can we help solve them, what are you doing to solve them, uh, what's going right. Uh, how are you building on that success? Uh, transparency is, is what this is all about. Transparency and constant communication. If you are totally transparent and you communicate with us all the time, you'll put us to sleep uh, and uh, we, won't, uh, we won't bother you. However, you shouldn't hesitate to call on us if, uh, if you need, need our help. That's right. I'm, I'm glad you brought up reporting because um, that is really critical for companies um, that have venture capital investors as well, seeing regular updates, the good and the bad, and how we can help. Um, I think that wraps up our topic for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Lee, for your time. Mm -hmm.